I am really excited this morning because we are starting a new series on the book of Esther. And I'm guessing that this is a book that for many of us is unfamiliar. It's one of the historical books in the Old Testament. We don't know who the author is. We're not told within the pages of the book itself. The storyline of Esther brings us into the court of the Persian Empire in 586 BC. It's a story about royalty, sex, power, wealth, and corruption. And Esther is an unusual book. Why, why would I say that? Why do I say that Esther is an unusual book? Here's why. There is no mention of God in this book anywhere, not once, no reference to God. God doesn't make an appearance in this book. What also makes Esther unusual is that there really is no commentary provided throughout the storyline of the book. The author simply tells the story. So when it comes to the behavior of characters in the story, the author doesn't uh, say whether their behaviors in different times are moral or immoral. You might say that this is a book in which God is hidden. And this has led scholars throughout history to really have mixed reactions toward the book of Esther. I mean, how can such a book as this be a religious text? That, that's kind of the lingering question throughout history behind the book of Esther. How can a book like this, a book that doesn't mention God, a book in which God doesn't appear, how can such a book be considered a religious text? How can it be included among the books of the Bible? Karen Jobes, uh, who teaches at Westminster Seminary, uh, wrote a fabulous commentary on the book of Esther, and she says this, although God himself is not mentioned in the story, because the book is in the Bible, in a sense, God is telling us the story. Now, here's my hope. My hope is that by the end of the series, we might see that God's absence in this book is actually the genius of the book, actually intended by the author. You know, it's not like the author um, finished the book and realized, oops, I completely forgot to mention God. Too late. It's written, so here we go. That's not how it worked. My, my hope is that by the end of the series, we would see that it's actually brilliant. That the absence of God, the fact that God is hidden in this story, is the genius of the book. Esther is an important book for us as we seek to live as God's people in a world where he seems hidden. Now, I, this is going to be a lot of fun, I think so. I, I'm really looking forward to it. Esther is told with lots of irony, lots of satire and humor. So, Esther 1. I'll read it, pray, and then we'll jump in together. The thing that I'm not looking forward to are there are a lot of hard names to pronounce, and we're going to encounter some of those uh, right off the bat. So they don't train us in seminary how to pronounce these names, um, so we'll figure this out together. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, here we go, the Ahasuerus, who, and here's the deal about Ahasuerus. His Greek name is Xerxes, and I thought, I'll just go with Xerxes. But I feel like after saying Xerxes 10 times, that's going to become just as difficult to pronounce. So 
What I'm going to do uh, after reading chapter one is I'm just going to refer to him as much as possible as the king. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 170 provinces, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a great feast, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches, yes, couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he was drunk, he commanded, all right, let's go, Mahuman, Bitsta, Harbona, Bigtha, and Agatha, Abgatha, Zathar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Mirs, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's behavior, will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes. And the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, this book, this book of Esther, is in the, story, the sacred story of Scripture for a reason, for lots of reasons. We pray that as we study it together as a people, that you would teach us that you would apply it to us, that you would clarify for us why this book is so good, why it is so relevant for us in our time. We pray that you, O God who seems so often hidden, that you would come and find us, even now in this moment through your word, through the power of your Holy Spirit. Seek and find us, we pray for Jesus' glory. Amen. Verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. The author of Esther, again, we don't know the identity of the author, but the author begins with the assumption that these are real events that happened now in the days of. Xerxes or Ahasuerus, or as we're going to refer to him most often, the king, became king at the age of 32. So he was young. He reigned from 486 to 465 BC, uh, which means the date that I gave you in the scripture intro, I forgot to go back and change that. If you even remember it, the date I gave you was wrong. And he was known for his consolidation of the Persian Empire. Now, there's this mention of provinces. These were smaller metropolitan regions that encompassed a city. And let me give you some historical context as we enter into the storyline of this book together. The Jews of Judah and Jerusalem were carried into exile by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. The temple, which was so central to Israel's life together, it, it, it symbolized really their relationship to God, their worship of him, and in many ways, their very identity as a religious people, it was destroyed, gone. God's judgment was on his people. And if you read the Old Testament, if you're familiar with this, it doesn't come as a surprise that this happened because God had been warning his people that he was going to send them into exile if they continued to rebel against him, disobey him, and commit the injustices that they were uh, in Israel. The exile was a turning point for, is for Israel in their history. And the question that lingered for them, the question that they asked and continued to ask was this, are we still God's people? Does the covenant, that, that special relationship that God entered into with us, does that still stand? Is that still relevant? Are we still God's people? Well, something happened eventually. A pagan king named Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539 and issued a decree that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple with resources provided by Persia. 
And so a group first uh, went back to uh, Jerusalem under the leadership of a guy named Zerubbabel. Then a second group later returned under the leadership of Ezra. There's a book of the Bible in the Old Testament called Ezra. And the books of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament tell the story of those Jews who sought to rebuild the temple and the city in Jerusalem. But Esther has a very different focus because most of the Jews did not return to Jerusalem. So what about them? What was going on with them? What's their story? Well, a book like Esther helps to tell their story. Esther gives us insight into what those Jews were doing who remained in Persia at the time. And the story of Esther takes place about 50 years after Cyrus's decree that allowed those who wanted to to return home to Jerusalem. Verse 2, he sat on his royal throne in Susa, the capital. So the story is set for us uh, very specifically in Susa. Now, to give you an idea of where this is in modern times, this would be where modern-day Iran is. So the story is set in modern-day Iran, if you will, and uh, Susa was one of the four capital cities of the Persian Empire. It was actually where the royal court spent their winters. They didn't stay there in the summer. Why? Because it was way too hot. So they got out of Susa during the summer months, but it's where they came uh, in the winter months. And the story of Esther takes place uh, really uh, most predominantly in the king's court. And the events of Esther span about 10 years. Now, when Ahasuerus, uh, I guess I'm being brave and not just simply referring to him as the king, when the king, this particular king, Ahasuerus, came into power, Persia was in conflict with the Greeks on their western frontier. Darius was Ahasuerus' father, and he was defeated in his attempt to take over Athens. And so now what was going on was the empire was preparing for its next military campaign against the Greeks. And we learn here in the text, in this third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. Now, this corresponds uh, in history with what is known as the Great War Council of 483 B.C. And it was held to plan and to make preparations for, as I said, this next military campaign against the Greeks, this invasion of Greece. And what the king was doing here, this wasn't just simply a time to celebrate, have fun, because the king's such a good guy and he wants people to have fun and be together. This feast hosted by the king was very strategic, very strategic. He was bringing together, as we heard in the text, the nobles, officials, military leaders, princes, and governors of all the provinces in Susa to rally support for his military campaign. And so during the 180 days of this feast, now they most likely weren't consecutive days in which this feast, that'd be a lot of partying, right? Um, but at the end of this feast, the goal of the king was, would be that he had convinced all of these that he had gathered together of his incredible wealth, of his glory, of his majesty and his extravagance, and that this is uh, the empire's wealth as well, and it can continue to be theirs as well if they continue to support him. 
verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So now we have a second, second feast, a second banquet, this one much shorter. It's uh, constrained to seven days. And this, again, is not because the king is so gracious and kind that he wants to bring all of the people together now. It is strategic. He's already gone after the support of the military leaders, those who are in power, and now he's going after the support of the general population. Because if they, too, can see the glory of his wealth, the glory of his splendor, and be convinced that it is theirs and that it can continue to be theirs, they, too, will commit their support to King Ahasuerus. The banquet, as we read about, was lavish and extravagant. Gold couches, gold vessels. He showed off his glory, his wealth, his power, in order to remain those who were loyal and supportive to him. Basically, the summary is this. King Ahasuerus wanted everybody to know that he was a really, really powerful man. And that the fates of all the people, essentially, were held in his hands. He wanted everybody to know. Gets awkward with verse 10, at least for King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, the final day of the feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, so the king's been drinking, he's drunk at this point, he commands the seven eunuchs to go get his wife, Queen Vashti. Now, we're not exactly told what he had in mind. Um, it could have just, at the very least, it was to parade her among all the people, to show off her glory, uh, to basically parade the fact that she is his. But there could have been sexual connotations as well. We don't know, we're not told, but knowing what we do about King Ahasuerus in the Persian Empire, that's a very good possibility. He was up to no good. We can leave it at that. This is a corrupt man. So he calls for her to come. Look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. Uh-oh. What now? Now, based on everything that you've heard about the glory, the power, and even the reference I made to the corruption of the king, you know that this, even if you didn't, hadn't heard me read all of chapter 1 and weren't familiar with the book, you know that this most likely is not going to end well for Queen Vashti. Her defiance, from their perspective, influences, impacts the whole kingdom. Now, this is an incredibly unstable man that we're talking about. Now, some of it is specific to his actions, but some of it is just more generally uh, what would take place back in those times. So for the, these Persian uh, uh, influencers and those in power, they would get together and they would get drunk and purposely, intentionally make decisions once they were drunk. And then the next day, they would be reminded by their officials of the decisions that they made, and they would then evaluate whether they were wise decisions or not. So that's just how they rolled. It's how they operated um, but we're talking about incredibly unstable men. And with King Ahasuerus in particular, an incredibly unstable man. And so when you hear verse 12, that, que that Queen Vashti refused, yikes, yikes. What's going to happen 
next. The king can't afford to overlook Queen Vashti's public defiance from his perspective. So in verse 15, he asked his political advisors for counsel. We get the note that he does so because they understood the times, which means that they used astrology and other forms of divination to discern the course of events. And here's the counsel that he receives, starting with verse 16 from this man named Mamukin. He basically tells the king, like, all right, king, here's the deal. Her defiance against you is not just between the two of you. This is public defiance. And now here's what's going to happen. I'm telling you, I'm warning you, king, um, all the women of the, the kingdom, they're going to hear about this, and they too are going to be tempted to treat their husbands with contempt and to defy all of their wishes. You see what has happened here? A uh, personal matter has now become an empire-wide crisis. That escalated quickly, didn't it? And so the advice that the king has finally given, the conclusion of it is, is that um, we have to make an example of Queen Vashti. We have to make an example of her. And so she must be removed from her position and banished from the royal palace. And another woman can become queen. And it specifically says, one who is better than she. In other words, one who will be obedient to all the wishes of the king. So how does the king receive this? He says, no, that's bad. No, no. Verse 21, the advice pleased the king and the princes. Well, of course it did. Of course it pleased him. It served to guard and protect the position of those who are in power in this story. And so letters are sent to all the provinces of uh, the empire. And we're going to come back to this because there's incredible irony in what's happening here. And maybe you're picking up on it already, but we'll come back to it. But the letters mandated that every man must be master of his household and speak according to the language of his people. Wow, the irony. I want to tell you about it now, but it would be better to wait. But for now, let's just pause and ask, where is God in all of this? Where is he? There's no mention of him. He doesn't make an appearance. How is this a religious text? What is the point of this chapter? We're brought into a world of incredible extravagance, wealth, power, glory, splendor. We're brought into a world of corruption, of pride, of selfishness, of manipulation. It's a world that each and every one of us knows. This is the world in which we live. This is not just simply some distant world, it's not some distant place out there. This is, yes, the customs, the, the cultures are different, but this is the world in which we indwell. A world of corruption. A world where it seems like the storyline of pride, uh, of uh, manipulation, prevails. Where is God in our world? Now, there's so much irony oozing in almost every verse here. And I, I just want you to know that as we read the book of Esther, we would not be reading it the way that it was intended if we overlook all of the satire and irony that is contained in the pages of this book. But here's one of the pieces of irony. This book, obviously, I mean, sometimes we get mixed up. 
this book was not written for the people who necessarily who were living at that exact moment. The people who would have read this, it would have been later on in history a little bit, and there's differing uh, opinions on exactly when the book of Esther was written. But for those original readers, they would have known how the story arc as a whole played out. And so they would have known what happened four years later. King, what's his name? King, uh, the king, right? That's his name, the king. The king suffered a surprising defeat in trying to take over Greece. And so the author of Esther could have began there, could have began by introducing the king as the one who suffered this humiliating and surprising defeat, but the author does not begin there. The author begins with all of the glory, all of the splendor, all of the wealth. The author is setting the stage for the incredible reversal that's going to take place in the storyline of this book. And how about the lack of power by these men who seem to believe they have all of the power? This is another item of incredible irony here in our text. The king... He doesn't know how to respond to his own wife. He has to seek counsel from a group of individuals. Basically, what do I do now? This is the king, the one with all of the power, all of, uh, you know, all of the splendor. And he's doesn't even, he doesn't know how to simply respond to his wife saying no to him. What an incredible lack of power. This is meant to be somewhat humorous. That the man who believes he has all of the power in the world can't even, doesn't even know how to respond to this response of his wife. Pretentious. He's arrogant. He's insecure. And he's unwise. The king and these men think that they can control circumstances by decreeing whatever they wish. You know, you wonder, was there actually a law that spoke to what just happened? Probably not. It's probably being made up on the spot. Uh, 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 we got we to gotta figure out something. This, this may interfere with our power long term, so uh, let's construct this law. Here's what has to happen. What is happening is the personal anxiety, the personal insecurity of these men who project to have all of the power and all of the strength is interfering with their ability to lead and to lead well. And so... What was, and here's the irony that I was referring to earlier. As of right now, this incident is specific to the feast, right? Those who were present for it. And sure, word would have spread to some degree. Uh, people would have left, and maybe they would have told others what happened. But do you notice what the king and his officials end up doing? They publicize this throughout the entire Persian Empire in the languages of. Uh, people. They want every last individual to know. And so to a degree, what they wanted to avoid, they actually help accomplish themselves. David Foster Wallace, uh, who passed away a number of years ago, said that the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. The author of Esther is mocking worldly power. That's what's happening here in chapter 1. That is why the author of Esther is not beginning 
with the humiliating defeat that uh, the king suffered. The author is beginning with the glory and splendor of the king to set up the reversal that is going to take place. The author of Esther is mocking worldly power. The author of Esther is mocking the ability of people, uh, mocking people who think they have the ability to control life. And, and, And that's the best way to summarize this irony here. You have these group of men who project themselves as being able to control every last detail and aspect of life, but you can see how they are completely powerless and out of control, ultimately. Karen Jobes, uh, who I quoted earlier, teaches at Westminster Seminary and wrote um, what I think is the best commentary on Esther, says that those who can gain respect and obedience only by holding enough power to command it live with the constant anxiety of losing it. Let me read that again. Those who gain respect and obedience only by holding enough power to command it live with the constant anxiety of losing it. The author is cynical about the powers of the world. Are they ever really in control? Are we... Are any of us ever really in control? The answer to that is no. We try so hard to control the circumstances of our our lives, and to the degrees in which we have power in our lives, we seek to exercise control, some of it good, uh, but some of it not good, but we seek to exercise control in order to feel secure and stable in life. But the reality is, is that we don't have that control that we presume that we do, or at least that we're aspiring to. We, it, it cannot be grasped. The control that we desire cannot be grasped. It cannot be achieved because we are not God. Where is God? We've got to come back to that question, don't we? Where is God? No mention of him. He makes no appearance. Where is he? We're quoting Karen Jobes again. She says, the complete absence of God from the text is the genius of the book. The explicit absence of God in this story is particularly appropriate for its historical moment because this book focuses on those Jews who have not returned to Jerusalem, to the place where Yahweh, that was uh, Israel's name for God, where he lives. Where is God? Among these exiles who remained in Persia, where is he? And where is God in our world? In a world where sometimes we feel like we are pawns in the hands of politicians who are manipulating, exercising power and control, control that they ultimately don't have. Sometimes we look at the affairs of the world and we see corruption, we see injustice, we see the threat of uh, the misuse of power. We have to ask ourselves, we can ignore it, that's an option, not not a good or healthy option, but it's an option. We can ignore it, but it's healthier to just take the question head on. And so where is God in all of that? Can he be found? Is he just completely and utterly absent? Well, from the biblical story and from life, we know that 
For us to know God in any way, he must reveal himself to us. He must reveal himself to us. But here's an irony in the biblical story as a whole. Because of the ways in which God often reveals himself, we overlook it. God is not hiding. God is so often making himself known, seeking to make himself known, but we are missing it. We're overlooking it because what we are trained to look for is power, glory, extravagance, wealth. And in the biblical story, God does not reveal himself most of the time in that way to us. He comes to us humbly. He condescends to us in order to give us access to him. You see, if he actually always came to us in glory and power and majesty, we could uh, uh, categorize that as his holiness. It's what sets him apart. We could not remain in his presence. It would be too much. It would be overwhelming. And so God must reveal himself to us in a way that is accessible, in a way that requires him to condescend to our level. And throughout the pages of the Bible, that is what we see from God. That is the model of power. That's the model of how power is meant to be used for the good of others. And so now we have our drastic contrast. Our contrast with how prideful men, selfish men, with their own agendas, how they use power, which is to preserve their own security, their own stability, and so they use others. They manipulate others. They harm others. I mean, just to give you one example of King Ahasuerus and his uh, incredible instability, Uh, Some of his men at one point during his reign were building a bridge and it got delayed. So he didn't like the fact that it was delayed. And what did he do? He had them all beheaded. This is the kind of man that we're talking about, the kind of power that was being exercised. And the author of Esther is setting up a contrast for us. The contrast between worldly power and heavenly power. A contrast between how So often we uh, humans in this world use power and how God uses power. As I was thinking about this uh, this past week, I was reminded of how uh, we are in the midst of Black History Month. And, um, you know, I've said this before many times before, but I I think that increasingly for us as a church, as we look ahead uh, to Uh, just where our culture is going and um, how the church is becoming more and more of a minority. We're losing influence and power that we once had. We'll be talking more about these kinds of things uh, throughout the series. But I think that where we, uh, particularly us as whites, where we need to look for help is the black church. Because the black church throughout its existence has modeled what it means to follow Jesus without power, without influence. And so um, there's a, a book that is called Were You There? God Forsakenness in Slave Religion, written by David Emanuel Goatley. He teaches at, I think it's Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And uh, in this book, he talks about uh, the, both the, um, where is it, my notes? 
the, the presence of God and the absence of God. The presence of God and the absence of God, how, how they are both always true in our lives. And he points to the, the spirituals, um, the African-American spirituals, and how they're not simply expressions of resignation, but how they are actually vocalizations of hope. And so even in the midst of feeling a degree of God forsakenness and absence from God, feeling like God is hidden, they also have hope because they know that even in the midst of that, God is actually present. You know, they might not always be able to reach out and feel him and touch him, but he's there. And these spirituals gave vocalization to that hope. But somebody else commenting on Goatley's book uh, writes this. Goatley sees a narrative that functions as a paradigm for coming to a better appreciation of both the presence and absence of God in the midst of human alienation and suffering. Jesus is deserted by his friends. So he points to Jesus. He's abandoned by God seemingly on the cross, and yet God is truly with him in the midst of story. This, uh, this experience of being forsaken is not the end of the story because we know that in the story of Jesus himself. And so the presence of God, but also the absence of God. How do we hold both of these t- t- tensions together in life? Well, I think that one of the ways that we can do it is by looking to the black church for help, for instruction, for growth, and for wisdom. And it, the, the author who commented, on, was making the comments about the book, is on to something about the example of Jesus. How does God use power? Well, Jesus says that if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. How does God use power? God uses power in the way that Jesus uses power. How does Jesus use power? Jesus uses power to give himself for others. Jesus uses power to serve others, to make rescue and restoration and reconciliation possible for others. And in those moments, those seasons, those episodes of life where God feels so extremely hidden, this is what just blows me away. I've, um, I've shared with many of you before that I went through an episode uh, in seminary where I was just overcome by doubt. Uh, you know, again, many of you have heard this story, but some of you haven't. It, went, it was a few-month period. And I would literally go to sleep at night, look at Katie and think, what am I going to do when any day now I'm going to have to tell her I don't believe any of this stuff anymore? I don't believe the Bible is true. Uh, I don't understand why God allows suffering and evil in this world. He is hidden. He's absent. And so I guess I need to figure out something else to do with my life because this is no longer the direction. And if you, I'm prone to doubt. Just the way I'm wired, I'm a deep thinker, I'm just prone to doubt. But if you've experienced that kind of thing, you know what it's like in those moments. It just is so suffocating, it's so oppressive, it's so heavy, and you just see no way out. Now, God in his grace led me out, that's not the point of this sermon. Um, But what strikes me is being able to... What struck me the most was being reminded that God is a God who identifies with us, even in our sense of his hiddenness. Again, Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you realize that? Jesus himself 
cried out, God, you are hidden. You are absent. Where are you? But Jesus continues his work. He continues his work. He goes through with the work of the cross so that we might be able to return home to God, that we might actually know him, that we might actually be able to believe that he's on our side, that we have his favor. And it's not based on anything that we do, but it's based on what Jesus has done for us, that we can actually, through trust in Jesus, have God's favor. Know that God is on our side. Even in those moments when he feels hidden, when he feels absent, we can cling to the fact that because of Jesus, yes, God is absent, but he's also mysteriously present. And so how do we work to become more aware of God's presence in our lives? I just want to give you three things real quick. One, and trust me, these are real quick. You're like, wait, you're just now starting your three-point sermon? I'm really not. By looking to Jesus on the cross, for all the reasons that we just said, Also, um, looking into his word for help from unusual sources, like the book of Esther, to be reminded that even when God is hidden, he's actually mysteriously present. Community. Now, this is one of the, the reasons that I think that God sometimes seems so hidden to us, because God reveals himself many times through others. And when we're struggling to sense God's presence, we tend to Uh, move away from community and relationships with others. But it's in and through others that God reveals much of himself to us. And finally, through the sacraments, particularly the Lord's Supper. But even baptism. Anytime someone is baptized, it's a reminder for all of us that God is for us. That he is not hidden. That he has even given us these signs that represent his coming to us. And so we're about to, in a few moments, come to the Lord's table. What a gift from Jesus. It's as though Jesus says to us, look, I know there are going to be times in life where I I, I seem hidden, where you feel like I'm absent from your life. I give you my word. I give you one another. But I also give you this meal, this tangible meal that you can touch, that you can smell, that you can see these tangible reminders that even though I may seem absent, I am mysteriously present with you. Let's uh, pray. Father in heaven, we pray along with Isaiah that you truly are a God who hides himself, but we are also saved by you with everlasting salvation. We give you the glory, the majesty, the praise, the adoration that you are due. We are so grateful that you did not destroy us with your power, but you served us, you loved us, you made the way of salvation possible for us. We pray that as your people, we would learn for your model of how to use power. Shape us into greater Christ-likeness that we might serve the world around us, even when the world is hostile toward us. I pray that you would teach us to serve and to love. We thank you and we pray in uh, the name of Jesus. Amen.